0: Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we'll be talking with two New Haven filmmakers who have upcoming Connecticut premieres of their respective feature films. On the first segment of the show, we'll be talking with Brennan Toller, director of the documentary Danny Says, which opens at the Bowtie Criterion Cinemas in downtown New Haven this Friday night. We had Brendan on the show last October to talk about the stories behind Danny Says and his first feature documentary, I Need That Record, both of which look lovingly at punk rock as a haven for the young, the passionate, misfits, and outsiders. And you can listen to that interview by going to deepfocusradio.com and looking up episode 11. So for today's conversation, we'll catch up with Brennan on the many exciting things that he and Danny says have been up to in the past year. But we're also going to dive deep on two documentaries that have had a strong influence on Brendan as both a maker and watcher of movies. The 2000 documentary Benjamin Smoke, about an oddball musician from Atlanta, Georgia, and the poverty-stricken community in which he lives and the 1993 documentary Silver Lake Life, about a long-term gay couple from California who create a video diary of the final few months of their lives as they struggle with AIDS. For the second segment of the show, we'll be talking with director Russ D. Martin, another returning guest to the show, about his new feature film, An Inappropriate Effect, which will be making its New England premiere at the Bethel Cinema in Bethel, Connecticut next Wednesday, October 5th at 7pm. We'll talk about the story behind the movie, making a low-budget thriller in southern Connecticut, and how one goes about representing the criminally insane in the movies. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the studio, Brennan Toller. Brennan is a New Haven-based filmmaker whose second feature-length documentary, Danny Says, opens at the Bowtie Criterion Cinemas in downtown New Haven this Friday night, where it will be staying all week. Brennan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you back. it's great
1: to be back, Tom.
0: So, for people who maybe have missed episode 11 of the show or haven't caught all of the great reviews coming out, tell me and the listeners... Uh, about Danny says, what's this movie about?
1: Sure, Danny says now acquired by Magnolia Pictures, who are putting it out this tomorrow Friday, uh, is about this guy Danny Fields, who was a rock and roll revolutionary of the '60s and '70s and beyond. Uh, he discovered seminal acts like the Ramones, the Stooges, the MC5, Nico, uh, David Peel velvet underground groupie press publicist to the doors warhol guy he's everywhere he's great the, the movie is uh entirely in his, in his voice with interviews with alice cooper iggy pop tommy ramon jonathan richmond a very rare jonathan richmond on-camera appearance and uh
0: he's kind of ambushed in the movie from what i remember right he's playing some gig and someone you pull him aside after show and say quick jonathan richmond uh, i camera. would have liked
1: <laughs> to sit him down somewhere but that's the it's apparently the way he likes to do interviews he did an interview like that on wfmu a few years ago he actually just um introduced the film and did A Q&A in chico california and uh he was totally blown away by it. He loved it, I guess. He he called Danny the other day. I have not heard the recorded phone message from Danny Fields yet, but uh, eagerly awaiting.
0: So one of the things that's so exciting and innovative about this movie is that it tells the story of the kind of emergence of punk rock in the late 60s and early 70s in New York City through the lens of this one character, this kind of Pivotal kind of connector of important people in Greenwich Village uh, and beyond uh, is this. You know, in the year since we last had you on the show, as you've you know begun to show this movie around even further, uh, tell me about some of the responses that you've seen from audiences. Well, yeah, not not just critics, but from audiences. How have people been responding to this approach to telling the story of the Stooges, the Ramones, uh, the Andy Warhol, and a factory?
1: Well, if my voice sounds a little haggard is because we had the New York City premiere the other night and uh, right after the film screen the first person to come up to me was Jim Jarmusch and he said that was just totally amazing and I've had so many people like that that have been my heroes and people I've looked up to all my life come up to me and say like this is a total work of art thank you for this, thank you for preserving these stories, Thank, thank you for bringing this story out and I think audiences are really responding because it's a story of a guy who's inventing himself and also inventing a culture danny was not into stuff that could even be remotely called mainstream at the time and then the mainstream sort of came his way i mean people like iggy pop patty smith and joey ramon were freaks back then there were not bidding wars for these people but you know danny uh creates context
0: you know, one of the lines that has so stuck with me from the movie and one that I think we will bring up as we talk about two of the documentaries that you picked as having strong influences on you is when, I don't know if Danny says this or someone says this about Danny, um, but he kind of gave a legacy to the no future people of the world. He said, you have a future, right? This this music gave the no future people of the world a, a future. And I think listening to the the Rolones, the Stooges, you know, people pushing back against the kind of humdrum nature of the uh, kind of working-class lives from which they were emerging and the conventions that they were rebelling against, these are giving people who are kind of on the fringes of socially acceptable kind of behavior uh, a future and something to look forward to. And I think one of the kind of difficult things for people who are so into that music of the late 60s and 70s today is that, you know, classic rock and punk have become so uh accepted in the history uh you know in in the kind of mainstream musical culture i mean it is something that is no longer transgressive really to listen well maybe may feel differently but i think looking at the you know the history no, it's of it's in car commercials now so right. i don't know <laughs> and it's yeah. right not just uh you know the rolling stones but even some bands like the uh the stooges of the velvet underground um and i wonder if when you play this movie around when you look at who's showing up and responding to these movies do you see the kind of misfits and outliers that Danny Fields was originally kind of coalescing uh, in this part of his life? Or or are these people who are just into classic rock?
1: It's uh, an intergenerational crowd. I mean, the best response that I get is usually a boyfriend or a girlfriend that was dragged to the movie theater and they knew nothing about this guy or this music and they walk away coming up to me which says something and totally stunned that this was they think that this is an amazing story and that people should see it because yeah there's all this marquee value but it's it's really Danny's sort of sense of humor and sarcasm and cynicism and wordplay and intelligence that is kind of brought forth that makes it worthwhile viewing I mean that's why I decided to take seven years and make this movie I just every afternoon I've ever had with Danny has been incredible and totally fun. So,
0: When we had you on last October, the movie had premiered at South by Southwest. It had played at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival in June of 2015. Uh, But since then, you've already alluded to a few of the kind of big moments in the past year, but it's been picked up for distribution by Magnolia. You've had a number of screenings in New York. Can you take me and the listeners on kind of a highlights tour of what has happened to Danny says since last October?
1: Sure. So, uh, right after the South by Southwest premiere, the first person to come up to me literally was a programmer from Lincoln center. And she passed me her card and said, I have to have this. So we, Oh, we were the opening night film of the, um, Lincoln center sound and vision festival last summer, which was totally incredible. And we, we sold out Walter Reed theater in, uh, I think like two days or something like that. was really insane. Um, what else? There were screenings in Knoxville, in Montana, in Los Angeles, at the Cine Family, the silent movie theater, and uh Jack Holzman got up and spoke for 10 minutes, handed me the, w- the mic, and walked out of the room, but he was really amazed.
0: <laughs> the I head mean, of Electro Records. Yeah, I mean, you movie. know,
1: we had done an interview with him, and I think he saw a snippet of it, and he said, oh, Brendan, could you please not use that interview? So I was, like, nervous as to what he would think, because he thought he looked tired, but he loved it, and... uh He's a hero of mine. I mean, what he did, not just for folk music, but rock music, too, and world music. I mean, he's just, again, he's one of my heroes, and to have his respect and his well wishes just means the world to me.
0: Just this past weekend, the movie was one of the kind of headlining features for Art House Theater Day, um, and I believe that, that screening was at the IFC in downtown New York? Was yeah, and rock also,
1: in, in terms of Connecticut, it, w- it played at the uh, Avon Twin Cinemas in uh, Stanford. Yeah, Stanford, great. yeah. And uh, I, I heard everything was great there, so.
0: Why do you think Danny Says was picked up for um, kind of being the the face of sorts of Art House Theater Day at some, I mean, the Avon and, and IFC are two very big, you know, important art house theaters in the East Coast. Uh, did, well, first of all, did people show up? Did people respond well to the movie? Uh, and
1: IFC, like- we had, again, you know, I always expect, oh, we've, this is like the fourth screening we've done in New York. How many people are going to show up? It was There were like ten seats left in the theater, and uh, this film critic Godfrey Cheshire did the Q and A with me. There was an awesome response. People, young and old, got up and talked, and the Q and A was more like like a activisty powwow than it was like you know it was like how are the young people of today going to make a difference, and how are we going to claim it for our own? And um, I think that that's what this film really shows is how to you know I've said it before, but how to be a trend. Setter, not a trend follower. Trend follower, and uh, really take hold of your future and create the future.
0: I think that may be a nice transition into talking about uh, one. You know, the first of the two movies that you picked for um, you know as movies that have had a strong influence on you, and that's Benjamin Smoke. But before we do that, tell me just so we have the date and the time down for. I know it's playing at the Criterion yeah. this Friday. When, when is Danny Says playing in New Haven? When are you going to be doing Q&A's? There?
1: Sure. So, yeah, the film opens in uh, uh, in select theaters and also on demand, iTunes and Amazon and on your cable box, if you still got that. And uh, that's tomorrow. And uh, I will be there, because I have to be at IFC uh, on, on Friday night for the opening, but I will be there Saturday in New Haven at the Bowtie Cinemas, and I will be there. Since the room is the small screening room, I will be there from two twenty on all the all the screenings to do a Q and A for those that are interested. Um, so please come. And I, I think in between, I'm going to hang out at like Barcelona or something like that. If people want to grab a drink after.
0: Great. Well, you are listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP one hundred three point five FM, New Haven's home for community radio. And we're talking with New Haven filmmaker Brennan Toller, whose feature documentary Danny Says will be opening at a number of theaters tomorrow, Friday, uh, including New Haven's Bowtie Criterion Cinemas. So one of my favorite uh, types of show to do here is talking with filmmakers and artists and just interesting people around New Haven about the movies that really resonate with them, movies that inspire them, that help them think differently about movies as an art form, a form of entertainment, and maybe affect the way that they make their own art. And so on today's show, you've picked two movies to talk about that maybe fit into some of those buckets, if not all. And I want to talk about Benjamin Smoke first and sure. then uh, Silver Lake Life. So Benjamin Smoke, a 2000 documentary by directors Jem Cohen and Peter Sillen about a singer-songwriter, drag queen, speed freak, and folk oddity named Benjamin from Atlanta, Georgia. Why, why did you pick this movie as one that uh, has had a strong influence on you?
1: Well, I wasn't going to pick something that was easily uh, seen on the shelves or revered by everybody. I'm always somebody that's uh, into the dig and into the hunt. And also, you know, Jim Cohen is a total, I mean, he's a hero of mine, but he's also, he's just, he should be a hero to everybody. Um, He really is like the punk filmmaker. He makes films over long periods of time with little to no money is uses multiple formats super 8 photographs film black and white color digital it, just everything and he creates these amazing beautiful portraits and and the film that probably everybody knows him for is uh Instrument the Fugazi documentary which is also worthwhile viewing but Benjamin Smoke uh really just took hold of me uh because and every time I watch it, it really surprises me. Because, you know, again, from the description, you're like, oh, yeah, oddball guy. He's HIV positive. He's a drag queen, but he's so funny. He's really. And so I guess Jem and Peter filmed this for over 10 years, and you can really tell, which I have immense respect for. You know, I mean, this project, Danny says, took me seven years. And I think that there's value in staying with the subject over a long period of time instead of, you know, something like these production companies that come in, you know, for two years and raid somebody's archives and usually the subject's dead and they think that they have some deeper understanding. I just, I don't buy it. And you guys, I feel it in the films, you know.
0: I'm so glad you started off with the, uh, (laughs) the way that the movie is edited and assembled, because I feel like that's kind of an odd way into talking about why you love a movie. But it was really the first the first, you know, thing that came to my head after I watched the movie was um, not just that there are so many different formats employed, because you're right, this was a, a labor of love, a labor of, of perseverance, you know, following this musician who I imagine was not too uh, eager to give a lot of interviews, right? He is someone who is either can be a bit difficult to pin down, or when you do pin him down, he, perhaps he's strung out and rambling kind of unendingly. So this movie is a kind of beautiful lyrical assemblage of different kind of components of Benjamin's life. One are interviews with him that are done in, I think, probably the 16 millimeter that the filmmakers were using as they kind of documented the story. Then you had kind of super eight home videos from Benjamin growing up. You had still photographs. You had music of him performing And on the one hand, it's kind of a hodgepodge of different formats, and I've been thinking a lot about Oliver Stone movies recently for a a different episode, but another filmmaker who loves to employ kind of different formats and the way that they can give off a kind of a documentary feel or a feel of kind of authenticity that you're not just watching something constructed for the screen, but here are different things that were recorded at different times and therefore give a bit of kind of historical authority to it. Here, those different formats aren't just used because they were the only ones available. They seem to give an impression of, uh, you know, there's something kind of unworldly about Benjamin, especially when he performs his music, right? He's someone just completely transformed uh, on the stage or when he has a guitar or a microphone in his hand. And I wonder, as a documentary filmmaker like yourself, I mean, you mentioned how, you know, you like having all of you. You worked on Danny says for seven years. Uh, there are a bunch of different types of kind of formats of film that were included in making any documentary. But when thinking about the way the Benjamin Smoke is edited, do you think that those different formats tell you something about the character himself, or is this just a matter of throwing together whatever you have available?
1: Well, I think in terms of Benjamin Smoke, it's really, um, all these different formats it's like new ways of seeing right new forms of beauty and 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 it's indicative of benjamin's music so it's very reflexive in that kind of way but i think seeing him through literally all these lenses is really just amazing and i, I mean even just the scenery so benjamin works around this place called cabbage town in georgia and you get the sense that like I mean, sometimes we think New Haven is bleak, but but, but Cabbage Town, it's like how he even found like a cellist or a banjo player that was even half competent is kind of a miracle.
0: This is a neighborhood, uh, you know, Benjamin describes as a place where go-karts are made, where kids go to prison too young where all of the parents do inhalants, right? And he's, you know, in his living room looking out at the kids as they're doing, you know, wheelies on his lawn. But this is an incredibly depressed area. Um, We see the stacks of the closed mill always in the background. Whenever we're looking at Cabbage Town, we have scenes of him or his cellist driving through something called the Crog Street Tunnel, which seems appropriately kind of menacingly named. But yeah, this, I mean, again, thinking about kind of parallels between what you were trying to accomplish with Danny Says and what, jem cohen and peter sillin do with benjamin smoke yes we have the focus on a particular person but that's also uh, an avenue onto understanding a specific time and a specific place and this is as much about cabbage town as it is about benjamin smoke
1: yeah i mean benjamin's music along with the what you know his surroundings is there a world unto their own and that's really what's so fascinating is just uh yeah, you talked about the go kart thing. I'm thinking about the scene with the kids where they're riding around the go karts in like a dust of dirt, and I think one of them flicks off the camera. Right, he's giving yeah, a peace yeah, sign, yeah. and then
0: he's slow. Right, and I and there's no commentary on the DVD. I, I don't know if the directors have added too much kind of supplemental material to it, but I did see Jem Cohen write. You know, part of making a documentary is you just get lucky when when a little kid. You know, how fortunate were we that a kid who was giving us the peace sign all of a sudden gave us the middle finger?
1: Yeah. And Jem has some Connecticut roots. He uh, he went to Wesleyan, I know that, and then um, he did a lot of work with the uh, Miracle Legion mm-hmm. way back when. You can check out that video online. Uh, he shot the video for You're the Only, I believe, yeah.
0: Benjamin is also the kind of consummate outsider. If he's living in a depressed rural area, kind of on the outskirts of Atlanta, he's also a drag queen in an incredibly conservative state. He is a speed freak, Uh, he has HIV, Uh, he is someone who, he tells all of these wonderful anecdotes about how he loves, you know, when police break up shows and his very first show, he was fortunate enough to have the police break him up. And there's a still photograph that goes along with that anecdote and it shows him wearing this big, beautiful, garish dress, right? And he has his, his hands out in some, you know, flamboyant pose and he's wearing one shoe. He was talking about how the one thing he regrets is that he was going to go to prison with one shoe on. But if we're thinking again about, you know, maybe the appeal of Danny Fields and the appeal of Benjamin smoke and maybe even how gay people are represented on screen. uh, Benjamin, everything about him makes him an outsider and yet he embraces that uh, wholeheartedly. And it's interesting how he has that identity, uh, that identity of outsiderdom clashes with the way that he understands his advocacy for people with AIDS because he says the one regret he has in his life right is that he wasn't as outspoken as he could have been um, about you know being proud and being alive uh, you know as someone with AIDS who is not trying to seclude himself but for some reason that was one aspect of his identity that he could not be as mouthy as he wanted to be about and I wonder as you know as you think about Benjamin as an outsider um, how do you feel that that part of him is you know communicated through the movie and was that part of the appeal of of danny fields do you think of danny as an outsider whether because of his homosexuality or just because of his you know not quite fitting in at harvard or in brooklyn or wherever it is that he's well i think the the
1: reason that i like characters like benjamin and and danny is um they're complicated and they're they're also they're undefinable I mean, these are two people, if we're going to compare the two, which is kind of hilarious to think about, uh, they are not defined by their sexuality. And I think that that's really important to see and hear today. Um, you know, you know, there's still leaps and bounds that need to be made in terms of equality, but as gay becomes more of a mainstream thing, it's becoming kind of commodified and, um, homogenized and and kind of put into this box that it never should, sexuality shouldn't be in that box. And, uh, you know, I I just love experiencing somebody like Benjamin who is just so free with his words and his, you know, he's just an incredible person. Um, But, you know, I mean, I suppose I, I picked these two films because they are about people who are... A bit on the the margins of society, they are outsiders. They are um, they have a sexuality that's not uh, heteronormative, and yet that's not necessarily a, a component. I mean, it is. I mean, we'll talk about it in Silver Lake Live, but um,
0: I think it's a good point though about how sexuality is not the it's not necessarily the defining aspect of Benjamin's identity, right? He doesn't, you know, if you asked him who he was first and foremost, he probably wouldn't say. Um, I'm a gay man in Cabbage Town, uh, Georgia, you know, he'd probably say, and this is kind of the next and kind of the last point I want to make sure to talk about with this movie, he'd probably identify as a musician. And if he you know, makes that transition from being an a kind of outsider to an insider at any point, or maybe a transition from feeling completely um, out of sorts in his skin to feeling completely at home, it's when he's singing. It's when he's writing music. It's something that he feels compelled to do. Right? He can't do anything else. He, he has to make music. But he is, he kind of gets the uh, stamp of approval from none other than his personal hero in Patti Smith, right, who shows up towards the end of this movie. So I, I wonder, what about Benjamin's music appeals to you? And do you think uh, kind of helps him straddle that line between the kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say weirdo in a pejorative word, but just say kind of strange, provocative guy and someone who is almost beloved by the community of people who who listen to him.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Benjamin's music is kind of compared to Tom Waits or Patti Smith, and he talks about in the film what an influence Patti Smith horses was on him. That just opened up his world. And, you know, the film is constructed in such a way that you feel like he lives in this kind of tiny, (laughs) I don't want to say prison, but it's definitely like within the walls of, georgia and you know and this is an amazing thing we're seeing and watching and how come we haven't heard of him and this is so great but uh it's really amazing when patty smith comes on screen because you realize okay this person was his hero and now it's kind of reversed she's in awe of him and she's celebrating his legacy and he had an impact on her and it's a little bit like I, i i've fortunately like i kind of feel that way with what i've done with danny says it's like i've had people who i just dreamed of you know getting like two seconds with tell me that you know this is this is the real deal this is how it was and this is uh really amazing and this is a really important story for young people to hear and people of all ages you know and and um I think that Benjamin Smoke is a testament to like making art and the effects it can have on people, whether you, we know it or not.
0: So that's Benjamin Smoke from 2000 by directors Jem Cohen and Peter Sill. And I rented it from Best Video, but I think it may be on YouTube as well. But yes, definitely a movie that is well worth. Seeking out. And the other one that you picked for this list, one that before we hopped on the microphones, I said completely destroyed me. But I think in in a way that I really appreciate.
1: It destroyed me too, Tom. Yeah,
0: Silver Lake Life, A View From Here, uh, started by Tom Joslin and finished by Peter Friedman. But this is a 1993 documentary about a couple who, once they find out that they have uh, HIV and AIDS, create a video diary of the last few, I think it's last few months of their lives. I I think that's roughly the time span. Um, and we see an incredibly kind of detailed and focused, and um, you know, a, a look, a glance that does not look away. I mean, this, the camera does not look away when things get tough for this couple, and we really see every detail of of what their life and and their death is like. Um, so, I wonder, uh, first, same question as with Benjamin Smoke: Why is this a movie that you wanted to bring to the attention of of me and our listeners?
1: Well, I think it's the possibility of documentary. I mean, this is made with a VHS camera and it won the grand jury prize at Sundance in 1993 when it, that probably meant something. Um, <laughs> now I, you can tell what I think of it, but um, I mean, Hey, I, anyone would love to win the grand jury prize at Sundance, but I think it's become a little bit uh, fixed if you know what I mean. And but, this would uh,
0: be, if this came out in 93, that'd be very early on in Sundance's uh, Life, as a yeah, festival, right?
1: and I mean this film. You know, again, I, I don't think people necessarily know about it, and that's why I'm glad to be talking about it. Uh, it kicked off PBS's uh, P- POV series as well. This was the first film, which is just amazing that this aired nationwide. And in 1993, uh, I would guess that the you know AIDS advocacy movement was still just had their nose to the grindstone still. Um, I'm sure it was still extremely tough there was still definitely uh, you know gay people and um, the AIDS epidemic was being swept under the rug and here it is right in your face and you cannot you know I think Silver Lake Life is a love story more than anything I mean it really is till death do us part for better or worse. (laughs)
0: And I think when we think about the history of AIDS, there are two very kind of important strands to keep in mind. One is the history of the actual disease itself and how, you know, the millions of people over the past uh, 30, 40 years who have died from AIDS. And the other is the history of the stigma associated with AIDS, particularly uh, in the homosexual community and particularly for gay men. And I think that what is so astonishing about this movie coming in the early 90s as it is, is that, yes, it deals, you know, there are um, aspects of their life that uh, you know they have to confront the stigma of being gay. I don't know if there's any explicit discrimination that they feel, or at least that's presented in this movie for having AIDS. But there is you know a lot of tension between the main characters and their parents about you know coming out of the closet and have you know being in a long-term relationship uh, between two men. But this movie is just, it's a document of two people incredibly in love with one another, right? There's nothing necessarily, you know, thinking about how transgressive Benjamin Smoke is and just about every aspect of his life, this is a type of relationship that I think everyone would understand, right? The love, the care, the humor and anger that they express towards one another. There is nothing uh, kind of pushing the boundaries about these lives except the depth of their love and the difficulties of living with a disease that most of the the country wanted not to look at and definitely not to find a cure for. And I think that's maybe that's where this becomes a kind of transgressive work of filmmaking. But what struck me initially was this is such a normal couple, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and my favorite scene, I think, is when they go, I mean, there's two favorite scenes, but one of them is when they, they're they so sick and they just say, screw it. And I think they maybe cancel some doctor's appointments. They had things to do that day, but they just go to the record store come home and dance to some new CDs that they've bought. It's really, really sweet. my other favorite scene is the, um, you know, I think it's Tom that passes away first. Correct. Yeah. So he's putting Mark, his partner, Mark is uh, trying to put his ashes in the urn (laughs) and the ashes are going everywhere all over the floor. (laughs) And he says,
0: at least says, Tom, you're making a mess of yourself. (laughs) Tom, you're, you're all over the place. Um, And there are, for a movie that in such a painstaking fashion documents what it's like to die of such, you know, a a terrible disease, there are so many um, moments of humor and levity in it. And I think that emerges from the personality of the characters themselves, particularly Mark. I mean, this movie, even though it's started by Tom and kind of follows the arc of his, uh, his diagnosis and death, this really becomes Mark's movie after a certain point, when he becomes the primary caretaker, when he is the one holding the camera. And when he's the one, I mean, he he says his biggest fear is to be left alone, to have to fight his own, um, you know, diagnosis of AIDS by himself. And I think that that adds a double layer of tragedy. We're not just watching the incredible kind of heartbreaking physical decay of one person, but we're always fearing that the onset of that physical decay is about to happen to the one person we can rely upon in this, right? The the partner who is supposed to support. And that double, I mean, that double whammy of both characters having AIDS and suffering through it uh, at different kind of progressions, it's it's heartbreaking. But I, I wonder, I mean, you've mentioned how this is this speaks to the power of documentary. This is made on um, just a home video camera. And we also have interpolated, a I imagine, some home film of uh from the late 1970s when tom comes out to his family in new hampshire right and as he's flying home to you know start making his documentary about having aids we see this movie of him coming out to his family and the smiles and the discomfort of the family as they recognize that he's a gay man i wonder watching this movie uh is there a way that it is again thinking about kind of editing together is there a way that this story is put together that particularly inspires you or inspired you as you were thinking about how to tell the story of Danny says how to hop between times and keep things coherent because you know your Danny says is focused on a you know a period that is long gone you know a couple decades ago a lot of the interviews are taking place in the 21st century but there are also there's footage from the 20th century you want to incorporate as well how did this help you think about I don't know, just the, the timeline of your filmmaking?
1: Well, this is art at at its extreme, really. I mean, Tom Joslin knew he was gonna pass away pass away, and he was the one documenting all of this, and he left directions for not only Mark, his partner, but then they chose this guy, Peter Friedman, who uh learned filmmaking from Tom at Hampshire College, where I went. And I I do want to give a shout-out. I mean, I would have never come to either of these films if it wasn't for my film professor, Abraham Revett, who's an amazing filmmaker. And uh, he lived in Tom Joslin's old house for many, many years. And uh, he would always show this film in his classes. And uh, it would just... uh, devastate them (laughs) i mean everybody should see this film i mean i I, that's why we're talking about it you know i sort of i warned tom that it's gonna blow you away and, and you're gonna sob your eyes out but uh it's really important and it's really powerful and really loving and there's so many filmmakers making you know social issue films quote unquote and this is definitely one of them the social political angle is right in front but it's also very character based and that's what I'm attracted to, you know. Um it's got a really loving, beautiful story at its core even though that they're 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 facing tragic circumstance.
0: Is there and not that this is the only through line between Danny Says and Benjamin Smoke and uh Silver Lake Life, but all three of these movies feature protagonists who are gay, and that you know their homosexuality plays a very important role in the way that they present themselves and the way that they are received by their peers or dismissed by their peers. Is there something about um, the presentation of homosexuality, let alone AIDS and Silver Lake life, that you found? Uh, I mean, you've already kind of gotten this, but something—it's uh, uh, something unique or a way that you want to encourage homosexuality or other types of people's, you know, sexual identity to be presented on screen? Like, is this a model for presenting, um, homosexuality on screen for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I just wish the world could be fluid, you know, in terms of gender and sexuality. You know, if I showed up in a dress tomorrow or at the new Haven premiere and people should just woohoo, you know? Um, and I just think that it's, these films were incredibly important, uh, depicting uh you know people who had different kinds of sexuality um you know i just i think that they're really important documents of what it is to to just be a a certain kind of human and be a creative type um
0: one of the closing lines of Danny says, Danny's reflecting on, uh, you know, what he remembers most fondly about this time of the 60s and 70s. And he says the people, he says the beautiful people, the intelligent people. um, It's not necessarily, you know, and that's almost kind of, Uh, kind of counterposed to the music, right? It could be easy to say, you know, I so love the feeling that I get listening to the music, but he points to the people. And it makes sense for him, one, because he's such an engaging storyteller and he is not a musician himself, but someone who's more, you know, his talent is more in bringing people together. And I think that these two documentaries as well, I mean, you said character-based earlier. I think that's exactly it. I mean, whether this is about a musician or about a filmmaker in Southern California, ultimately these two movies are about You know, they're incredible, well-rounded portraits of very specific people.
1: Yeah, for sure. And they were made just, you know, especially, uh, I think you were getting at this with a former question, but, you know, especially Silver Lake Life was just, it opens up the realm of what documentary, and not, not only what a character can be and what a person can be, but what a documentary could be. You know, you don't have to have a huge crew. You can just do it. Just do it on a VHS camera. I mean... That's uh, even Silver Lake Life has that kind of punk ethos, you know?
0: Brendan Toller is the director of Danny Says. Thank you so much for coming on, Brendan. I so appreciate talking about these movies Thank with
1: you. Thank you, Tom. And we'll see you all this weekend, right? Tell, uh, tell me
0: about, so we can see the movies at the Criterion this weekend. What's the website for Danny Says? And it'll, people learn so from?
1: at the Criterion, it'll play through, I believe, Thursday and maybe longer if we do well. Again, I'm there Saturday from the 2.20 screening on doing Q&As. And uh, it's also on demand. But the website for Danny Says is dannysaysfilm.com. You can also
0: Google it. Great. And we'll <laughs> link to that on depocusradio.com. Best of luck with the screenings and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Tom. All right. Coming up next is a conversation with New Haven filmmaker Rusty Martin. But first, let's hear a song called The Man from Lowell by Elson Jackson.
2: I'm cold and hungry, would you turn me away? And if I had no money, would you beg me to stay? Please tell me what you seek Please know that I am weak There's nothing but the sky above got in my
0: Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Yay. For the second segment of today's show, oh wow, who is that? Uh, it sounds like our second guest is here, Russ <laughs> D. Martin, another return guest. Uh, you may remember him from an episode <laughs> from the summer about the 48-hour film Project New Haven. But today, we have him on talking about his feature film an debut as a director or uh, no?
3: Yes, Feature yes. film debut as feature a director film debut
0: an inappropriate effect, a thriller about an Iraq war vet trying to break out of a hospital for the criminally insane. So, Russ, first of all, welcome back to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on.
3: Thank you. Thank you. To, it's great to be back.
0: So first, let's get we're gonna we'll plug the screen in a bunch, but first tell me when is this movie playing and then tell me what it's about.
3: All right. So on October fifth, up in Bethel, Connecticut at the Bethel Cinema, seven o'clock, we're going to show the film. We're going to uh, then have a meet and greet a couple of the stars i can't believe i got them to come back because now they're all blowing up uh are going to come back for this screening i'm very excited uh and yeah so that's movie starts at 7 seven thirty, somewhere around there uh hour and a half later we'll we'll hang out and talk with people and you know get some autographs from some of the bigger names
0: great so that's next wednesday at seven o'clock bethel cinema and what is an inappropriate effect about
3: an inappropriate effect is, at its heart, it's an escape movie, right? It's fun. It's shot in the style of the old '70s movies, you know, The Longest Yard and Mash, where it's real kind of a dark humor to it. But you know, it technically it's a drama, a little bit of a suspense film. But uh, yeah, it's an escape movie, and it's a, uh, as you said, it's about a, a, a marine who comes back from uh, his second tour. He finds himself in a wheelchair looking forward to doing his physical therapy to learn how to walk, but they're forcing him to go through a mental evaluation as well. And while he's there, he starts hearing rumors from both the patients and the staff that there may be something nefarious behind him being there and him going through mental health. And the basically the predominant rumor that starts all of the events is that uh, since the government is paying his tab to be in the hospital, it's not in the hospital's interest for him to get better. And uh, that starts a whole slew of adventures for Tom and the uh, the members of the Elm County Mental Hospital.
0: I'm so glad that you brought up uh, MASH as maybe a, a source of inspiration for this movie because I, I couldn't quite place it so while watching it, but yeah, Robert Altman and his style of filmmaking, that type of overlapping dialogue where you're watching one scene and then you hear the kind of dialogue among characters leading into you into the next, um, and let alone having groups of people with, you know, you introduce so many different characters over the course of the movie, and you give you really give them each, you know, their due for a movie that is fundamentally a thriller where we're wrapped up in the plot about how is this guy going to escape. We get to meet probably 10 or 15 different people who either work at the hospital or live at the hospital. And I, I imagine it's quite challenging to write If not, you know, full roles for each of these characters because you have a limited amount of time in which you want to tell this story. You really bring them to life, and I think one way you do that is through the dialogue leading us from one scene into the next. And then also, when we are watching people converse, it's often around a table. We often have six or seven people, and we have the camera kind of hopping, or not hopping, maybe slowly, kind of panning from person to person, so that we get to see each face and hear each voice and hear each anecdote about the people at this hospital. So I wonder if you could tell me a bit about one, making a a thriller like this on a relatively low budget, but also that's like, how, how did you look to employ that strategy of bringing to life, you know, a whole bunch of different characters in a relatively short amount of time, uh, in the context of a story that is supposed to keep the viewer kind of constantly on edge.
3: Yeah, that, that was the, the balance, but, uh, As all great things, it was based around what we had to work with at the time. So what we had was a very low budget. So what do you do if you have a low budget? You get really good actors, which we got insanely lucky on this project. We got some very good actors. And um, it was just a lot cheaper to work with the actors for two or three months before we started filming than it was to try to get actors to fit into a character that I had pre-written. So in the three months of working with the actors, we had an idea for the script. We knew where it was going to begin. We knew where it was going to end. We kind of knew main points, but all of those characters were based on the characters that these actors had brought in. You know, we did all of our uh, rehearsals and casting down in the city and, you know, we just worked with the actors week after week. uh, We started off with like 350 actors came in. We worked a little workshop groups. Whoever was bringing something I thought I could use would keep them, move them into the next group and you know kind of an elimination tournament trying to see who works best for my story and all the, so all these guys came in and made their own characters so we were able to wrap them into a story and then we tried to find ways that each arc would fall somewhere into a main plot point that would kind of take us out cuz i mean momentum is the hardest thing when you have something that's you know an indie film so it's a lot of dialogue it's a lot of character building it's a lot of performance so to keep the the pace going uh, yeah, it helps to uh, have everything have a purpose, and to have a badass soundtrack, which we also got very lucky
0: with. And I, I definitely want to talk about the soundtrack to the extent that you can. I'm not sure. I saw on Facebook that you couldn't quite promote the name of the yeah. We have the a couple of very large of the... artists
3: who liked the film, so gave me a very good deal on using the music in the film, as long as uh, on the stipulation that I don't advertise their names ah. in 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 going for the film. So it's a surprise when you get there, and when you hear it, it's, it's pretty great. And we got really, really blessed.
0: I mean, we were talking about balance and making a kind of low budget thriller and how important that is. And one of the ways that you achieve that is your focus is not just on this ex-Marine, but also on a a male nurse at the hospital who's trying to raise enough money to pay for a surgery for his mother. And those two storylines, one maybe a bit more rambunctious and violent, and then one maybe a bit sadder and sweeter are kind of intermatched throughout the movie. And we are following either thread as they kind of interweave and as they intersect. Uh, what, what was it about that particular storyline that you found important to include in this movie as a way of balancing out uh, what you were looking to accomplish in the kind of more thriller prison break aspect of it?
3: Well, um, it was kind of a backlash because, you know, action movies of the last 15, 20 years I said, all right. Well, there's a bad guy, and we got to blow him up, and, and that's good enough, which is cool. You got some nice special effects, and and I love a lot of those movies. But when they did action movies back in the '60s and '70s, you know, there's the bad guy. He's a bad guy because of this. We're able to blow him up because this other character over here has a bomb, and all these things would have to come together for this one memorable event. And that's when life plays out. Really amazing thing happens all the time, but it's usually because eight different perfect storms kind of line up. And make this event happen. That's what I wanted to happen. I wanted the events with a, a couple of the different patients, with Jeff the orderly, and with uh, Sergeant Schmidt, to all kind of line up at the one moment on this one night where everything just kind of falls apart. And I felt it. You know, it makes it feel more real. I I, I tried to avoid that. Um, well, that would never happen. And we're like, oh yeah, it, it would actually. If you this sets up and this sets up and this sets up, and as long as I figure. You can make the most amazing thing happen on film as long as you let the audience know how it came about. So there's a, a point to it.
0: I think that that question uh, that you have to combat that that would never happen is a good uh, transition into something I wanted to ask you about, which is you mentioned movies from the 70s playing a strong influence and one that immediately comes to mind. Anytime you watch a movie about, you know, people trying to break out of a home for the criminally insane is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Um, Mila's Foreman's movie with Jack Nicholson and... Uh, a whole, you know, swath of, of character actors who emerge as you know people kind of drugged into submission at this home, and the way that they combat uh, that kind of negative medical influence that they feel uh, being imposed upon them. And I wonder, one, when you were thinking about making a movie about the criminally insane. Potentially, it gives you almost too much leeway as an artist, right? You you don't want to go overboard and make these people completely outlandish, or else people would sit there and watch. Okay, this would never happen, or these are people I don't understand, right? But on the other hand, they are criminally insane, so I imagine that gives you some amount of freedom in putting, you know, uh, words into their mouths or actions into their bodies that you or I or other, hopefully, non criminally insane people well, would not normally do. It, it was
3: it was more limiting because we, we were very we took a lot of time and a lot of precautions. And we worked with uh, a lot of actors who had some background with uh, family members. I had family members. So we made a very strong point of every character in this movie has a specific condition or an array of conditions. And we kept what they were able to do and where they went to that. Uh, The the main thing we wanted to do is not play up, you know, wacky nut jobs for fun. Uh, They just happen to be wacky nut jobs. And they... they happen to be fun people because actually I mean the, the the base of the humor comes from when you're in a bad situation, you look for the funny. And if you've ever spent a lot of time around people who are stuck in one of these hospitals, they are hilarious and they're hilarious on in with intent. They have a lot of hours to fill in the day, so they're constantly trying to have fun and make it entertaining for themselves just to get through the day to day. And we try to go for that type of humor as opposed to, you know, just letting oh he's an upball, let him be an upball and that that'll be funny. We were very, very strict about not going to that.
0: And how about the, I mean, if we have the criminally insane making up a good proportion of people uh, featured in this movie, we also, or at least the characters in this movie, the main character is an ex-Marine, someone who has clearly uh, been traumatized by what he has done or what has been done to him uh, overseas. I wonder how you came to decide that you wanted that particular character to be at the center of this prison break story uh an ex-marine uh someone dealing with the physical and kind of psychological trauma of being at war
3: yeah that was that that was a convex of, of several different things uh and he's actually named after two marines that i know uh, a guy named tom and a guy named schmidt i i, I kind of combined them and well basically i knew i wanted to go for this genre picture this 1970s style dark humor genre picture so I needed a tough guy. I needed somebody good, and so I was like, I need kind of a Clint Eastwood kind of guy. And these two guys, these two Marines I know, are two different sides of that Clint Eastwood kind of guy. One's the, uh, you know, the stranger that comes in the town, and the other one's, you know, uh, any which way you can, Clint Eastwood. And you put them together, you got this one guy. So it was it was main mainly based on wanting that type of character and the fact that. You know, the two people I knew who best defined that type of character happened to both be Marines at the time. And um, both had uh, served several tours. And one of whom who I explained I was using them for uh, part of my model for, for one of my characters, he had a, a couple specific uh, requests for this character that uh, I can't actually say because it would ruin the uh, ruin the
0: plot. Well, the, the last time we had you on, you were talking about your... Um your film for the Forty Eight Hour Film Project, New Haven, which is this two day competition over the summer to make a movie according to a very specific set of criteria, including genre, prop, character name, wine, um, and you know we spoke about the different uh, ways that you are constrained by and are free to do you know particularly creative things when working in such a tight time frame. I wonder, working on a feature film, I imagine there are a lot of things different about making a feature film versus a short couple, film, but couple talk, things. talk through some of the the bigger ones for uh, well, me actually, and our Well, actually, the listeners. similarities
3: comes to uh, what we were able to do, and we talked a little bit about it last time here when I was here with Leroy, who also had a, a film. You know, we, we did uh, the dual films, but um, the one of the similarities was since we couldn't know what we were going to write for the actual script, and we couldn't know you know how everything was going to play out. All we could do was work with the actors, and these actors, we had four actors who had never worked together. So we did the the prep like we did with uh, an inappropriate effect. We had them for a month or two and just tried out different scenes, tried out different character types, and and just tried to see what worked best. As far as trying to pull Sutton off in forty eight hours, it's actually with the exception of writing a script. The rest of it is just trying to make your day. You know what? You've got to shoot that day, and it's the same as being on set. You're making your day. You're not making your day. So it's actually not terribly different when it gets to that point. It's the script writing that's the the pain.
0: And you, I was listening to an interview you did on WNHU yesterday. You said you made this movie, or you, you filmed it three years ago, or some, uh...
3: Yeah. It was filmed over 14 days, uh, yeah, three years ago, and, uh, we have been in post-production hell since then. That's, that was the big lesson. Consider me your signpost to say make sure you have a post-production budget and a contract with a post-production person, a reputable one, before you start rolling on day one.
0: Perhaps that is an interview for another time, but as this, oh, you know, unfortunately, as we uh, wind down the time we have today, I want to make sure to give you plenty of time to plug yes, got various plugs, things. All so kinds we have, of plugs. we know the screening is happening next Wednesday, October fifth. October fifth,
3: uh, Bethel, Connecticut, seven o'clock. Please come on down, support uh, independent film. Tom Carruthers gave us this wonderful opportunity to set us up with Film Fest Fifty Two, which is the precursor to the New Haven uh, International Film Festival. So. um yeah, please uh, show your support for a local film. Show your support for a good film, a fun film. You know, uh, not all indie films have to be uh, gay cowboys crying over oatmeal. We can we can have some fun with it sometimes, and this is one of those times. Uh, other things, we have uh, Camping with Tom and Henry down in Westport. It's live play. Uh, this is the last weekend. That's why I have this ridiculous mustache. Um, so on Sunday, I get to shave. That's going to be good. Uh, this Saturday... Downtown New Haven, Political Animals, are uh, dropping their latest album, which we shot a music video for. Me and my partner, who made an inappropriate effect, did a music video called Bang Bang for uh, for them. And the, the, the premiere for that is going to be downtown Saturday night.
0: Well, that's great. Where Where is that going to be? Oh, uh, Well, we can post a link to it on defocusradio.com as well. I always forget the name of the bar. It's right around the corner
3: from the movie theater. Okay.
0: And is that going to be on YouTube as well? Or will that be somewhere online? I guess we'll... We'll, we'll post information as we find out. will have to look it up. Out. Yeah, okay. I'll have to call the guys. Great.
3: But um, and then uh, the last thing is over the next month there is an art exhibit going on downtown Bridgeport. Uh, selected works from uh, uh, Joe DeMarco, um, scrap art, genius stuff. Uh, so go take a trip downtown Bridgeport and uh, walk around. You're gonna see some really really cool work. And I think that's it. October October fifth though seven o'clock. Please, come to Bethel. We need, we need some people to make this, uh, make this
0: happen. I can't wait. I've, I've seen it. I can hardly recommend it. It's a movie well worth checking out. So, Rusty Martin, a New Haven filmmaker, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about An Inappropriate Effect. Thank you. You've been listening to Deep Focus on 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. You can find an archive of all previous episodes of the show on deepfocusradio.com. And coming up next, an episode of Elisa's Cocktail Hour.